If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the letter of Jude. The letter of Jude, it's in uh, near the end of your Bible, the book right before Revelation. As we've said before, it is one chapter in length and about 50 sermons in length. It's a lot of meat here. It's like an accordion. It just, once you get into it, it just starts to expand. So I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 1 down to verse uh, 11 today. This is the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also... Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Herein ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Almighty God, this is your word. It's not the word of a mere human. This is a word that you superintended for the good of your church, a word that is a warning. Let us hear it as such. Let us know that warnings are good for us. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, anoint me with the, the power of your spirit to be able to preach your word, for without it, my words will fall to the ground, but with it, Lord, you have the, the power to transform lives, and so I pray that that would happen today. Lord, if there be any in here who are unsaved, unconverted, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that we would come to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. So how seriously do you take warnings? So it seems like today in, in, in the world that we live, there's warnings for us everywhere. We get warnings from the White House. We get warnings on the medications that we take. We get warnings on the products that we buy, especially if it comes from California, because everything from California may cause cancer, right? How, imagine if you didn't, need, didn't heed the warnings on these products that I'm getting ready to mention. Product, a Dremel rotary tool, something that you'd buy at Lowe's for woodworking. Warning, not intended for use as a dental drill. That'd be kind of painful. Product, urine powder, to protect your yard against bobcats and foxes. Warning, not for human consumption. That would be traumatizing to your taste buds. Product, a Superman costume for kids. Warning, this costume does not enable flight or super strength. That could get a little, little crazy around the house, couldn't it? The truth is, is there are some warnings that you can afford to ignore because they're just common sense. But if you treat every warning that way, it could be at the expense of your life. And if you treat every warning in the Bible that way, it could be at the expense of your soul. Let me ask you this morning, how seriously do you take the warnings of the Lord Jesus Christ? How serious do you take his warning in the Sermon on the Mount where he says this? He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree that bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Warning, warning, wolves are coming in sheep's clothing. False teachers who come under the guise of being servants of the Lord, but are actually servants of Satan, whether they realize it or not. How seriously do you take that warning? See, they are coming, and they're going to look like Christians, and they're going to talk like Christians, and they're going to profess to be Christians, but in reality, they're not. How can we ever recognize someone who is disguised like that? How can we ever recognize them as the ravenous wolves that Jesus says that they are? Well, He tells us. He says, you will know them by their fruits. You will recognize them by examining their lives and seeing what is produced. See, that's exactly what we've been witnessing taking place in the book of Jude. Wolves, apostates, those who had turned from Christ, were, had, had infiltrated the church. They had crept into the lo this local church that Jude is writing to unnoticed. Why were they unnoticed? Well, it's because they were disguised as sheep, disguised as Christians. But after some time, the fruit of their lives, the fruit of their ministry became visible. And so in passionate love for this vulnerable local church, Jude picked up his pen to write to warn them that in their midst at that very moment were dangerous wolves, the dangerous wolves that Jesus had spoken about. 
Dangerous wolves that if left unchecked would wreak havoc on their faith and blow up their church. And one of the ways that Jude warns them in this letter is by doing what Jesus told us to look at. He does it by pointing to their fruits. He says, you, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Now, thankfully, our Lord has not left us just to guess what the fruits of an apostate are. He's, he's laid them out for us in His Word. And specifically, as we are seated, we're, we've been seeing and we'll see more today, he, right here in Jude's letter, He's showing us what the fruits of an apostate are. So, so far, we've actually seen, as we've been studying through the book of Jude, we've already seen five fruits or five signs of an apostate. Just as a reminder, in verses 8 through 10, we saw that apostates rely on another source of revelation, not the Scriptures alone. That they legitimize sexual sin. That they reject God's authority by rejecting His Word. That they are careless with demons. And then last week in verse 11, what we saw is that like Cain, they despise righteousness as is defined in God's Word. Those, are, by the way, are listed in your bulletin if you have those. And today we will look at the last two fruits or signs of an apostate in the latter part of verse 11. I've titled the sermon, Portrait of an Apostate, Part 3. Because what is taking place as we read through the book of Judah is that, that our Lord in His grace is painting for us a portrait, sketching a portrait for us of what apostates look like. And the main point I want you to see today is the same main point as the last couple of times is this. Apostates can be difficult to identify. Therefore, know the signs of an apostate and stay alert. Stay alert. Here's what I want you to see in verse 11 today. This is sign number six. Apostates are driven by money and possessions. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. We saw that last week. And they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. See, the intriguing account of, of Balaam and his talking donkey, you can find that in Numbers 22 through 24. Israel had been wandering in the wilderness for almost 40 years, and they were led to the plains of Moab. And their presence there in the plains of Moab made the inhabitants there shake in their boots. Why? Because they had seen and they had heard how Israel had pulverized the Amorites. And so the king of Moab, a man by the name of Balak, King Balak, he had this brilliant idea that he was going to summons a well-known quasi-prophet, quasi-sorcerer by the name of Balaam. And that was going to be done, and he wanted Balaam to come and to curse Israel so that he could protect his kingdom and not be overtaken like the Amorites. In Joshua 13, we learn a little bit about Balaam. It says that he practiced divination. You don't know what that is. In ancient times, the diviner or the sorcerer would uh, take liquids like water or oil, and they would look into them in order to try to read them to conclude what the future would be. It's a practice that in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord tells us that it is an abomination to him. It's something that he not only hates, he hates with a passion. But Balaam was also a quasi-prophet. Albay, a false prophet. He was a, a man who, like many people in our day, had at least a little bit of head knowledge about the one true living God but he was void of the heart knowledge that accompanies salvation. He was steeped in syncretism. He was commingling false religions with the true, something that is also 
an abomination to God, something that God hates that he's told us in his word. And so King Balak, he sends his representatives to Balaam with these, their pockets weighed down with the fee for divination. And when they arrive there, it's actually quite mysterious what happens if you look in Numbers chapter 22. See, the first time that the, the representatives come to, to Balaam and asking him to come and curse Israel, the Lord appears to Balaam at night and he, he says, don't go with them. And so he sends the representatives back. But then the second time, King Balak ups the ante a little bit and pretty much promises Balaam anything that he wants if he'll just come and curse Israel. And so the Lord appears to him again at night and the Lord says, go, go with the representatives. But what's quite odd is that when he goes, it says that the Lord's anger was kindled against Balaam because he went. What's going on there? Well, why was the Lord angry with Balaam when he was the one who told him to go? Well, what we learn that after Balaam's donkey's talking and abnormal behavior that happens, the Lord revealed why he was angry with Balaam. He peeled back the curtains of the invisible realm and helped him to see that there was an angel poised to kill him. And the angel says this, speaking for the Lord, he says, Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. In other words, outwardly, you're doing what I told you to do, Balaam, but inwardly, your motives are wicked. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. And when the Lord looked on Balaam's heart, he saw what was driving him, the prospect of financial gain and possessions. He was eager to perform King Balak's request and to curse Israel because then he could fill his pockets and maybe build that house that he'd always wanted on the banks of the Jordan. Balaam was a prophet for hire. You pay and he'll say, pretty much whatever you want him to say. You shell out the dough, and he'll go pretty much wherever you want him to go. See, that's what Jude is referring to here when he writes that they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Like Balaam, apostates, they abandon themselves. They give themselves over to money and possessions. They're ruled by them and driven by them and to attain them at all costs. Sadly, even the cost of their own souls. Paul writes this in regard to apostates in 1 Timothy 6, 5. He says this, They are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. <laughs> you mean that I can become a preacher and it can be a money-making enterprise? That I can get that house I've always wanted, that car, those clothes, that reputation? See, the reality is that sometimes the apostate's drive is to be rich, like Jim Baker in the early 1980s, if you know who that is. But oftentimes, other times, it's just a drive to make a living at the expense of God's people. Like the thousands of apostates that fill the role of pastor or professor in churches and seminaries that have abandoned God's word. Many of them in the mainline Protestant denominations that we've already spoken about, like the United Church of Christ, the Peace, uh, Presbyterian Church USA, and many others. They abandon themselves. How? By not teaching what God's Word commands them to teach. For what? For the sake of gain. Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 2. 
about apostates. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That's what they do. They'll use you by their false words, their lies, to increase their wealth. They'll twist passages of Scripture and convince you that if you'll just give them money, that you will be blessed. See, apostates are not driven by care for you, and they're not driven by the glory of God, but they're driven by greed for money and possessions. Oh, how many Christians today have failed and ignored this warning sign in Jude and have been lured into the clutches of peddlers of God's Word. The most prevalent in our day being peddlers of what's known as the prosperity gospel. What's that? In a nutshell, it's a perverted gospel that teaches that if you exercise faith in Christ, you will most certainly be blessed with physical, material, and financial prosperity now in this life. It teaches that on the cross, Jesus purchased physical healing for every disease and sickness in this life, as well as atoned for the sin of poverty. Thus, it is is hyper-focused on physical healing and financial blessing now. How can you tell you're listening to a prosperity gospel preacher? That's because they talk an awful lot about healing now, financial blessing now. It teaches the prosperity gospel that if you're not experiencing healing for your sickness or supply for your finances, it's because you don't have enough faith. What stands between you and healing or you and riches? It's more faith, they say. Do you have stage four cancer? You can be healed with more faith. Is your house on the brink of foreclosure? You can be, uh, that, that house can be uh, paid for in full with more faith. It teaches that one of the channels to attain God's financial blessings is to give more to His kingdom, which is often identified as the prosperity gospel preacher's ministry. And in case you didn't realize it, a lot of that money ends up where? In his pocket. To fund their extravagant lifestyles, mansions and nice cars and golden toilets. There is a prosperity gospel preacher that has a golden toilet. Look it up. Nothing inherently wrong with having those things. That's not the point. But how you get them matters. It says that, Peter says that they exploit you or use you with their false words. They imagine that godliness is a means gain, Paul says. How are so many people today, how are they led astray by this nonsense? How are they led astray by this racket that's going on? Well, it's because they've bought in to the fundamental error that the whole prosperity gospel is, is, is founded upon. And that is the error of the word of faith theology. Namely, that part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that like God, our words, our spoken words have power to create. And so God spoke the world and it came into existence. And when we speak a word of faith, a believing faith, a believing word, those things come into existence. It's as if God has this fist full of blessings that He's just waiting to pour out. And what, he, what causes His fist to release those blessings is you believing that He will provide you with them, health and wealth now. This is name it and claim it theology. You may have heard some professing Christians say things like this, I decree or I declare that I am healed from this sickness that I'm going through right now. Or I decree or declare that that promotion at work is mine. You see, this is exactly what the Word of of Faith theology teaches. 
Again, this fundamental error that what it means to be created in the image of God is that our spoken words have the power to create like God's. Power to create wealth and healing, prosperity. Literally, millions and millions of people right now are being deceived by this false gospel in North America, South America, Central America, Asia, Africa, in some of the poorest places in the world. Come to Jesus and you no longer have to find to struggle your next for, to find your next meal. We see we've noted over and over again as we've studied through Jude that what apostates offer is always enticing. It's enticing. If you live in the slums of Kolkata, India, literally scraping by to, to get your next meal and someone comes to you with the promise of, of prosperity in Jesus, you are going to be enticed by that. But it's not just enticing in the poor countries. It is enticing in wealthy nations like America where this false gospel has been born and has flourished. Why has that taken place? Well, because to hearts that love money, the prosperity gospel is like a big light that just attracts flies. It's so attractive. Who are the preachers that preach this prosperity gospel? Well, the short answer to that is that they're everywhere. They're in the communities that we live. I heard from a local, I heard from a very trustworthy uh, uh, source of a local church off of Piney Green Road in Jacksonville where one Sunday they, they took up the offering and the pastor didn't like what he saw in the offering plate. And so he ordered the doors in the church to be closed. And he said, nobody's leaving until we give what God is, God's due is to him. I've been told that that pastor lives in one of the richest neighborhoods in eastern North Carolina a peddler of God's word for gain. So these preachers are local. Make no mistake, they're local. But they're also national and international. Famous ones. Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, John Hagee, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, and others. A quick sampling of what they teach, so you know I'm not just making this up. T.D. Jakes. If you obey God, you will never be broke another day in your life. Joel Osteen, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money to fulfill the destiny He has laid out for us. Paula White, in an appeal for money on her website in 2019, she writes this, I prophetically decree and declare deliverance and prosperity are yours in 2019. This is the year you inherit your promised land. And we could go on and on. Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, oh, preacher, aren't you just being overly critical here? Don't those people, those preachers, just love the same Jesus as we do? No. No, they don't. They love the Jesus of their imagination who is more like a genie in a bottle than the Jesus of the Scriptures. They love genie Jesus who will feed their idol greed let me just ask you the simple question. Can you read the words of Jesus in the Scriptures and conclude that His goal is for His followers to prosper in health and wealth in this life? Just listen to Jesus' prosperity gospel. In Matthew 18, to a prospective follower, Jesus says this. He says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. In other words, that's where they live. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. In other words, if you follow Jesus, there's a chance that you could be homeless. Do you know that there are plenty of believers today 
that have been chased from their houses and villages because they follow Jesus and they're without homes. Jesus said this in John 16, In this world you will have wealth. No. In this world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. John 15, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Matthew 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, his instrument of suffering, and follow me. Is His promise health and wealth in this life? 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh that was given to him from who? From God. This thorn in the flesh which was probably a physical ailment of some sort. And he said this, he said, I decree that I am healed. And he was healed, right? No. He says this, he says, I asked the Lord three times to take it away from me. And the Lord's answer was no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Is his goal health and wealth in this life? John Piper hits the nail on the head when he says this. He says, if God's love for his children is to be measured by our health, wealth, and comfort in this life, Then God hated the Apostle Paul, shipwrecked, imprisoned, flogged, impoverished. See, the prosperity gospel is a big, fat lie. It moves the center of the gospel away from Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins to Christ ascended for the distribution of wealth and health. It moves the gospel call away from come to Jesus to be pardoned from your sins and to be reconciled with God to come to Jesus to have your wealth increased and your health renewed. It moves the promised inheritance away from the new heavens and the new earth and it tries to drag them down to this present fallen earth. It moves everything the Bible teaches about suffering, its reality, its purpose, its goal, and God's plan to a corner where suffering is seen as something that should be foreign in the believer's life. You know, I don't know who said it, but it is so true. Bad theology hurts people. It hurts people. Many a professing Christian has bought into the lies of the prosperity gospel and are chasing after a mirage of health and wealth that God has never promised. Countless false converts have been been produced because they come to Jesus for prosperity instead for the forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation with God. And on judgment day, they will say, Oh Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And they'll hear the most haunting words that will echo throughout eternity. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Others today being hoodwinked by the prosperity gospel, are weighed down with unbearable guilt in their suffering, believing that it is continuing because they don't have enough faith. You want a recipe for disillusionment and hopelessness? It's the prosperity gospel. Bad theology hurts people. But good theology, biblical theology, frees people. And a proper understanding of that, it starts with a proper understanding of the gospel that is preached in the Bible. See, God's Word declares that you weren't born into the perfection of heaven, that you were born into a fallen world under the curse of God, a world where suffering and injustice live, a world where there is disease and sickness and poverty and war and tragic accidents and relational conflict 
and grief that sometimes feel like your heart's being ripped out of your chest. A world where at times the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. We've been seeing that in the book of Ecclesiastes. God's Word also declares that you were not born into this world as His child, but as His enemy. Do you know that before you could talk, you were manipulating your parents and you were coveting things that weren't rightfully yours? No one taught you that. Do you know that when you could talk, you lying and disobeying your parents came naturally? No one taught you that. Do you know that as you grew, anger against others and lust for others became a staple in your life? No one taught you that. See, all of these bear witness to what God's Word teaches, that that you and I were born with a sin nature that is bent on rebelling against God. You were not born as His child, but as His enemy. Do you understand that? Have you come to the place where you embrace that? God's Word declares that the soul that sins shall die, that the wages of sin is death. And that's not just physical death. That is, that is uh, the second death that's referred to in Revelation 20, which is hell. The wages of sin is hell. Before you could talk, you'd already earned your wages. When you could talk, you earned your wages. After you grew, you've earned your wages. Last week, you earned your wages. Every stage of your life. You've lived in sin and earned your wages. See, God's Word declares that He has established a day when He will judge the world in righteousness. And on that day, the evidence table, your evidence table, will be filled with an unimaginably enormous pile of your sins. And everyone whose table contains sin, He will pay their wages that they are due to. He will pay them hell for their rebellion against Him. And there is nothing that you can do to change that. There is nothing that you can do to empty your table of your sins. There is no good work. There is no cleaning up your life. There is no religious activity. In and of yourself, you stand there condemned, doomed to have your wages paid to you. But God, in His Word, who is tells us is rich in mercy, tells us this. That God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, when the battered and bloodied body of Jesus hung on that cross, something way more significant than a mere physical death was taking place. The wages that His people had earned were being paid to Jesus. It's as if he went into the courtroom of heaven to that evidence table of all of, his, all of his people and scraped their sins off and said, this belongs to me. And then he went to the cross to pay the wages for them. The infinite wrath of God that would have come crushing down on his people in hell came crushing down on the Lord Jesus Christ in their place. We earn the wages of hell by our sin. Jesus received our wages in our place. And then the scriptures tell us that he laid down his life His cold and lifeless body was placed in the tomb. And on the third day, the sign of Jonah that Jesus had said and promised would be displayed was displayed for all to see. That just as Jonah was resurrected from the belly of the fish, so Jesus was resurrected from the belly of the grave. An undeniable sign that it's all true. Do you want freedom? You want freedom from your sins. You want freedom from hell. 
Do you want freedom to know you're in a right relationship with your Creator? Do you want freedom from the fear of death? Do you want freedom to know that all the pain and the suffering that you've experienced in this life is going to be reversed? Do you want freedom to know that all the trials that you're going through right now have a purpose in the plan of God and that it's not a result of your lack of faith? Do you want freedom to know that you can be content with what God has given to you now, knowing that in Christ you have all the prosperity that you need in this moment and not to mention He has promised you a prosperity that you can't even imagine in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you want freedom? Then believe in Jesus who came to set the captives free. And how do you do that? Well, you do it by turning from your sins and trusting in Him alone for your salvation. Have you done that? Have you done that? You see, the biblical gospel brings freedom, whereas the prosperity gospel can offer you none of that. Friend, do not be deceived. Prosperity gospels rarely preach that gospel. Some of them never And they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And like Balaam, they abandon themselves for the sake of gain. And so, oh, how gracious the Lord Jesus Christ is to his sheep to warn us that one of the signs of an apostate here in Jude 11 is that apostates are driven by money and possessions. So beware, beware, beware. The last sign that I want you to see is also in verse 11. Sign number seven, apostates rebel against God-appointed leaders. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. The account of Korah, you may recall, can be found in number 16. God had delivered the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt and He had established His covenant with them. He'd given them His law And he instituted old covenant worship via the tabernacle. Well, to carry out this worship, God had specifically set apart a certain tribe in Israel, the tribe of Levi. And amongst the tribe of Levi, uh, God had divvied out specific families to be in charge of different aspects of this tabernacle worship. For instance, Aaron and his sons were given the task of, of being priests, charged with ministering close to the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. Well, Korah, he was a Levite, but Korah wasn't a priest. He was a man under authority, a man under Aaron's authority as the high priest, a man under Moses' authority as the uh, chosen, God's chosen leader. And after time went on, he began to despise that. He thought that all Israel should be able to draw near to the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle like Aaron and his sons were doing and Moses was doing. And so he enlisted a couple of his friends, Dathan and Abiram, and he incited a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And at the heart of that rebellion was the twisted theology that we don't need spiritual leaders. We don't need teachers to teach us God's word. We are God's holy people and we can lead ourselves. That's essentially what he's saying in verse 3 in chapter 16. He says this, this is Korah speaking, You have gone too far, Moses and Aaron, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Implication, we don't need you to lead us and teach us. Then they continue, Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? In other words, we don't think your leadership is legitimate over us. 
I can't think, help but think about how many millions of professing Christians have been infected with this apostate way of thinking. I don't need to be under spiritual authority. I have the Holy Spirit to lead me. I'm not a member of a local church because I don't like organized religion. I can worship God at home by listening to Charles Stanley on a Sunday morning. I don't need to be a member of a local church. Friend, if this is you, I want to love you enough today to tell you that you have been fooled. You have been bamboozled. You have been deceived. You have bought into the lies of Korah by rejecting God's will for you to be under the authority of a local church and specifically under the authority of pastors or elders. That's not my word. That's God's word. In the book of Acts, we see people coming to faith in Christ and immediately being gathered into local churches and pastors appointed to lead them and feed them with God's word. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, we see the qualifications for pastors who, like shepherds, will oversee Christ's flock who have been called out of the world and called into a holy assembly to worship Him together. In Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy, pretty much the whole book and many other passages, we see the undeniable assumption that under normal circumstances, Christians will be committed members of a local church and under the loving authority of pastors. I'll just give you one example of that. Hebrews 13, 17. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Professing Christian, if you cannot identify a pastor in whom you obey and submit to, and they cannot identify as you as one who is under their spiritual oversight, then you may have bought into the lie of Korah. Your actions are saying that the local church is it's unnecessary for me. Being under the leadership and spiritual oversight of pastors, ah, that's not necessary for me. You're claiming to be a follower of Christ but you're not following Him. You're rejecting the assembly He's called you into, the local church and into the leadership He has appointed to watch over your soul for your good. You're rebelling. And His message to you this morning is to repent, to turn from that nonsense. He's done it for your good. Now, of course, I'm not speaking to those who may be prevented by circumstances, like if you've uh, been bedridden or you have health issues. There's grace for that. But I am talking about if you have opportunity and you just choose not to. Maybe you say, but I, I've been hurt by the local church. I've been wounded by pastors who have abused their authority. Listen, friend, I have compassion for that. I get it. I get it. Perhaps the pastor you're speaking about, perhaps they were a wolf in sheep's clothing. Perhaps they shouldn't even have been a pastor. I, I don't know what the situation is, but I can tell you this. Not every church is like that church, and not every pastor is like that pastor. I can tell you that here at Grace Church, we have four imperfect pastors. But despite our imperfections, you know what we do? We take it very seriously that we shepherd Christ's flock in accordance with His Word. Not domineering over you, but being examples to the flock. Caring for you in your various needs. Leading you and feeding you with God's Word. Protecting you from wolves. That's false teachers who could harm you. That's why we call them out. 
That's why we say this, person's, this person and this person is a, it's a false teacher. See, for a sheep, the answer to a bad shepherd is not no shepherd. Right? Because without a shepherd, a sheep is vulnerable to starve to death and vulnerable to become prey to a hungry wolf. You see, there's a reason why God's people are likened to sheep in His Word over and over and over again. It's because, like sheep, we need a shepherd. That's Jesus. But don't ever forget that one of the primary ways that He shepherds His sheep is through His under-shepherds. That's pastors. That's pastors. Don't let unfaithful pastors keep you from faithful ones. It is established by Christ for your good, for your growth, for your protection. But apostates would have you to believe otherwise, wouldn't they? They would have you to believe their lies that will turn you against God-appointed leaders. They will seek to plant seeds in your heart that will grow to produce bitterness and, and against your pastors. They will malign them and slander them and attack their decisions and try to attack their doctrine and convince you that the grass is greener on the other side without them, without their leadership. Now, some of you may know that in my mid-20s into my early 30s, I was ignorantly trapped in the seeker-sensitive church. And I can tell you that I encountered leaders during that time that seem eerily close to what I'm describing here. It was not uncommon to hear godly pastors maligned because their preaching and their worship services did not appeal to the unchurched. I remember a seeker-sensitive pastor being hired at one of the more traditional churches that I was a part of. And when he came in, he began to speak negatively against the elder pastor who had been there for about 20 years. He said things like this. He, can, he can't relate to the unchurched. Did you hear that sermon? What would a lost person have thought? And slowly but surely, his lies and his influence began to develop a bad taste in my mouth for that elder pastor. And it began to, to develop a bad taste in the mouths of many, many, many people in that church. All to the point to after serving that church for over 20 years, the elder pastor resigned because he had been convinced by this seeker-sensitive pastor that he was not able to be young enough or hip enough to reach the lost. See, that's what apostates do. In rebellion, they sow discord against God's appointed leaders. That's what happened with Korah. Korah, his lies turned, just like that church I'm telling you about, his lies turned at least 15,000 Israelites against their God-appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. And in number 16, we see the showdown taking place. Moses and Aaron versus Dathan, Abiram, Korah, and 250 leaders of the congregation of Israel who had been influenced by their lies. Each man appeared before the tent of meeting before the Lord with their censer on fire and put incense on it. And we read in verse 28, And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. 
And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all his goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. See, this is what Jude's referring to when he says they perished in Korah's rebellion. Like Korah, the apostates in this church that Jude is writing to had rebelled against their God-appointed leaders. Like Korah, apostates today still rebel against their God-appointed leaders. And tragically, like Korah, every single one of them will experience a swift perishing as God's judgment comes and swallows them up and drags them down to hell where there is agony unimaginable with no hope of escape. I have said it before and I will say it again until I'm blue in the face. You do not want to find yourself following an apostate when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. You do not want to find yourself burning your censer on the side of Korah. Beware, Christian. Beware of those who trivialize following Christ by claiming that you can do that without being a member of a local church under the oversight of pastors. Beware of those who encourage you towards Lone Ranger Christianity, which is no biblical Christianity. Beware of those who speak negatively about godly pastors. Beware of those who sit on the sidelines and, and, and over-critique everything that they do and everything that they say. You see, all of this is a design. It's designed to turn you away from Christ by turning you away from His under-shepherds who are charged with care for your souls. So once again, our Lord has been so gracious in telling us that one of the signs of an apostate is that apostates rebel against God-appointed leaders. Pay a careful attention, Christian, that you're not lured away and perish with them. As we conclude this morning, up until this point in Jude's letter, the Lord has been sketching for us a portrait that is now complete of what apostates look like so that we can know if they ever come into, into our midst, we can know their fruits, we can know what to look for. We've seen seven signs of an apostate. We have them listed in your bulletin. Encourage you to focus on those and remember those. One of the things that I hope you've seen as we've been studying through this book of Jude, and we're not finished yet, but one of the things I hope you've seen is just how relevant this letter is that was written 1950 roughly years ago. It's relevant still today. It is exposed just about every apostate church and false gospel that exists today. From Mormonism to Catholicism, from the gospel of cheap grace to the gospel of prosperity, from the spiritual highs of charismania to the spiritual lows of theologically liberal churches that have abandoned God's word. See, the word of God is living and it's active and the Holy Spirit superintended it for you, Christian, to warn you and protect you. How seriously do you take these warnings? As Charles Spurgeon soberly reminds us, if sin could drag an angel from the skies, it may well pluck a minister from the pulpit, a deacon from the communion table, or a church member out of the midst of his brothers and sisters. Don't take Christ's warnings 
lightly. The good shepherd will most certainly keep his sheep. We saw that in verse 1 of Jude. He will most certainly keep his sheep until the end. But don't ever, ever, ever forget that one of the ways that he does that is through his warnings. So heed this warning. Apostates are coming. And you will know them by their fruits. They can be difficult to identify. Therefore, know the signs of an apostate and stay alert. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Lord, you've been so kind to us. Kind to us. More kind than it would be for me to be walking unaware that there was a grizzly bear chasing after me, behind me, and somebody calling out and warning me so that I could move out of the way. You've been even way more gracious than that to warn us about these apostates that are coming. You've shown us their signs. You've shown us the fruits that we need to be looking for. And I just pray that you would grant us grace, Lord, to continually be alert. Lord, so that our church may be protected so that churches that are around us would be protected, and so that Christ would accomplish great things by growing His church and strengthening His church. I pray, Lord, for those who are caught in the clutches of apostates. I know that there's probably someone here who who thinks highly of Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer. Lord, show them. Show them the truth. Show them how dangerous it is. Show them the wolf's tail that's creeping out from under that sheep's disguise. And we thank you, Lord, that you are so gracious to keep your sheep until the end. We are kept for Jesus Christ, as Jude says in verse 1. Thank you, O Lord, for your grace towards us. Bless us. We ask, we pray, we depend upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.